welcome to the First Lutheran Church located at 512 South Kale Avenue in Miles City with pastoral services provided by Pastor Steve Rice. <laughs> Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Boy, Joyce, give you a couple weeks off, and you know, just everything falls apart. <laughs> well, uh, a change, obviously, uh, to emphasize the, uh, the day, Holy Trinity Sunday, in which we find ourselves as we leave behind then that, uh, that time uh, of readings, that time of seasons of the church in the life of Christ, and we find ourselves now through the season of Pentecost, which began last week, uh, focusing upon uh, the story of the early church to which you belong. It is your story. And woefully, we, uh, uh, we lose sight of that sometimes. In, uh, in focusing upon our own faith, we forget that our faith is, in fact, a part of the greater story of the church. Christ left us not one written word but rather left us a community, and in that community grew that which is the church. And during its first millennium, during its first thousand years, after the church had been established at Pentecost, the focus of the apostles and those who followed seems to have been to me twofold. The church's first priority was, and appropriately so, Jesus's great commission and its fidelity to that to, in our Lord's words, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The church's second priority, though, was literally survival. Survival in the face of concerted efforts to destroy the church, to stamp it out. The first priority could not succeed without the second being successful. As there had been efforts to kill Jesus, so too the world responded to Jesus' message with efforts to destroy those found proclaiming Jesus and his gospel. And so we know that Cruelty at the hands of local authorities uh, took place, and Paul writes of those in his epistles. And that authority was soon eclipsed by persecution sanctioned by the all-powerful seat of authority in the ancient city of Rome. Historians tell us that Roman emperors such as Nero and his subordinates took perverse pleasure 
in both blaming these new Christians as they came to be called for every problem, every manner of ill in the crumbling empire and inventing ever more gruesome methods to torture and kill the followers of this holy, peaceful man, Jesus Christ. In the early days, the execution of Christian martyrs was advanced as entertainment to the empire. For the masses, Colosseums, the preferred place, where between chariot races and other public spectacles, Christians were murdered in the most vile of ways, and it was called entertainment. Almost predictably, Rome was where the Apostle Peter chose to travel. As if still atoning for his sense of uh, that he had failed Jesus, Peter went with the gospel to the very seat of worldly power. Almost as if tempting fate, Peter went to Rome, and Peter's missionary efforts successful, even though his life ultimately ended with a crucifixion, his own, at the foot of a little hill which the Romans in those days simply called the Vatican. There, Peter's body was buried, and his bones remain to this day, tradition holding that Peter was crucified upside down. At the same time, Rome was being thus evangelized by word and witness and martyrdom and the gospel being proclaimed throughout the known world. Another center of Christianity emerged and that center of the church was the Greek-speaking city Constantinople. Long name, huh? Constantinople, located at the land bridge between Europe and Asia. Constantinople stood closer to the church's holiest of sites, including Jerusalem, such that by the beginning of the church's second millennium, there was a struggle between these two important centers of the faith. And that struggle would prove to have profound theological and political implications, such that when Constantine, the first Roman emperor who converted to Christianity, wanted differences between these two places ironed out for the sake of unity, a church-wide assembly was called. All the leaders from the church of the time called to council together. Church leaders, including St. Nicholas, we believe, gathered in the city of Nicaea. Among the council's important work was that of combating heresies that were creeping into the ever-widening circles of preaching of the gospel as, uh, as the word was communicated and passed on and passed on. Errors, both um, benign and intentional, crept into that which was being proclaimed and chief among the the, the problematic claims of that day being made was that Jesus was not one with the Father, but that in the words of one particular heresy, quote, there was a time when he was not 
unquote, and therefore asserting that Jesus was subordinate to the Father. And so the Council of Nicaea produced the creed you all know, bears its name, the Nicene Creed. And in that creed is confessed that Jesus is of one being with the Father. And likewise important that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The Nicene Creed was intended to settle the so-called Homoousian and Filioque controversies of the early church. However, the creed didn't resolve those questions in every respect, and there increased friction and tension between the church that was now centered in Rome and also centered in Constantinople, and their conflict continued. The church in Constantinople confessed that the Holy Spirit proceeded only from the Father. And until the fourth century, when another effort at reconciliation was made again, this time not by a a, a political leader, not Constantine, but rather by Athanasius, a deacon. And that effort produced what came to be known as the third great ecumenical creed of the church, the Athanasian Creed. The longest, for sure, of the three creeds of the church, the Athanasian Creed, sought to be very precise and very intricate about the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons of the Christian God. Finally, during the reign of, and I'm almost the end of the history lesson here, by the end of the reign of Charlemagne, the church would forever split. The Eastern churches became known as the Orthodox churches. You know them today as the Russian Orthodox, okay, the Serbian Orthodox, the Orthodox churches. Ortho meaning straight, like orthodontist, okay? Ortho meaning straight, and doxa meaning glory, thus those who worshiped correctly, the right way. And the Western churches, known as Roman churches. Two centers of faith emerged with subtle but significant differences in the creeds and the liturgies of their worship. Beginning at that time, both political and theological interests became intimately, and at times I would suggest incestuously intertwined, until, until when Martin Luther appeared on the scene in the 16th century and Protestants of the Reformation emerged. The many faces of Protestantism that proliferated afterwards all flow from the Western Church through Roman Catholic lineage. So, whether of the Western or the Eastern branch of the Church, Roman Catholic or Orthodox, among the most defining elements, perhaps the most defining element of Christianity, is the dogmatic confession of the Holy Trinity. One God, three persons. First, the word dogma itself. There is often confusion between what is a dogma, what is a doctrine. We hear both words. The word dogma is that which must be believed. Speaking with its fullest authority, the Christian church declared that the Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, Holy Spirit 
as given by Christ was non-negotiable. You do not get to choose when it comes to that doctrine. Whereas the doctrines or the teachings of the church, they can and they do vary. Quite a bit, actually. For example, the nature of Christ's presence in Holy Communion. The understanding of how, or even if, Christ is present in the bread and the wine varies greatly. But it was determined that such variance does not of necessity remove one from the wider embrace of the church. Denying the Holy Trinity does. Such stability, as was brought by the creeds, and flexibility, as brought by doctrine, help to preserve the integrity of the church into its third millennium. That's us. That's us. Okay? That's not to say that the church must not continue to be careful and diligent against heresy. It it has to be because heresy never seems to take a rest. Witness the end of the church's second millennium. As it closed, the church saw assault against both the name and the nature of the Holy Trinity. Those assaults were largely, at least in my estimation, narcissistic in nature, self-centered, self-congratulatory often assertions, recasting the Trinity into their functional parts, for example. Gender references were seen as too pejorative, and it was common. I'm going to suggest, though, that trying to recast that which was given into creator, redeemer, and sustainer is not acceptable because it is not it is it is descriptive, but it's not definitive. For example, I can be called pastor, but that descriptive word does not define me as an individual among all pastors. There are many pastors, but there is only one me. So too, the word God. The word God alone says little until what is meant by the word is made clear. For Christians... God is invoked when the name of the Christian God is spoken, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And while each person can be addressed individually, the whole is always implied, as the Athanasian Creed will demonstrate, and you'll hear it in just a moment. In the three great creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, I believe, the Nicene Creed, we believe, Okay, and the Athanasian Creed that you will hear, one confesses not only that one believes, but says what one believes, not thinks, not prefers, not demands. In a time when wordsmithing and incremental deception abounds, the careful preservation of the core tenets of Christianity is ever more important. While language does change, And we acknowledge that our language has changed, our hymnals have changed, our translations even of Holy Scripture. 
have changed over time. While language does change and evolves, that evolution must not be for the purpose of incrementally destroying the substance of what has been given, what has been handed down and held inviolate into our, this third millennium of the church. And it has been done so at great cost, innumerable lives, much suffering. Those we speak about as martyrs who've gone before us. You see, I would give you, if you strip the Judeo-Christian religion of its core beliefs, the church becomes little more than baptized social proclivities, as history is taught, and often political subterfuge. Picking what you want, ignoring what you don't, and dismissing the rest based upon the ever-changing landscape of culture and self-interest, personal preference, and politics, I give you is a sure path to destruction than the persecutions of ancient Rome. So it is imperative on this Holy Trinity Sunday that this congregation, that we as the people of God confess the faith of the church, the faith in which we baptize. In the words of its three ecumenical creeds, subordinate to scripture, but above our preferences, among the three, the Athanasian Creed is most eloquent in its description of the Christian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In part, the three creeds define the church. Again, the creeds are subordinate only to Scripture. The Athanasian Creed that you will hear weaves together in poetic form what must be believed. So it was, so it is, and so it will be so long as the church shall last. And to that we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The Athanasian Creed. If you wish to follow it, it's on page 54. Whoever wants to be saved should, above all, cling to the Catholic faith. Whoever does not guard it whole and inviolable will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, 
eternal is the Spirit. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal, as there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son, Almighty is the Spirit. And yet, there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. And the Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus, there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits. And in this Trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other, but all three persons are in themselves co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. Whoever wants to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also faithfully believe that our Lord Jesus Christ became flesh. For this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man. He is God, begotten before all worlds, from the being of the Father, and he is man, born in the world, from the being of his mother, existing fully as God and fully as man, with a rational soul and a human body, equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not divided, but is one Christ. He is united because God has given humanity into himself. He does not transform deity into humanity, he is completely one in the unity of his person, without confusing his natures. For as the rational soul and body are one person, 
so the one Christ is God and man. He suffered death for our salvation. He descended into hell and rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people shall rise bodily to give an account of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing this firmly and faithfully. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this production of the First Lutheran Church. We welcome you to visit us in person at 512 KL Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook at First Lutheran Church, Miles City, Montana, and email us at flc at midrivers.com.